Right. Uh, well, a very good evening to you all. Um, welcome to this uh, LSE uh, Polis Institute of Public Affairs uh, public lecture. It's really a, a lecture linked to a book launch. The book will be available outside, outside afterwards. This is the book. Uh, it's called Why We've Reached Peak Bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> not a good start, is it? There's me trying practiced years not saying these kind of words in public, and as soon as I try, it goes wrong. And what we can do about it, an optimistic title, you might think. Um, <clears throat> before I go any further, I also need to point out that there is a hashtag for Twitter users, hashtag LSE Post Truth, and this is one of a series of public events, as many of you will come to, uh, about many of them about international affairs, this one this evening, a broadly drawn uh, discussion based on the book uh, about the way in which our society, government, in fact the, the very basis of the way democracy functions, may uh, or may not have been affected by the way in which news is presented and particularly uh, the way in which fake news or alleged fake news uh, now reaches the airwaves and, indeed, uh, the new media. I'm just going to introduce the event. My name's Tony Travers. I don't think I even said that, uh, from the LSE. And my colleague, Charlie Beckett, is going then to uh, conduct the rest of the evening. And the evening, as I say, is in the matter of the, um, this book written by Evan Davis. I'll just say a couple of words about Evan, and then he will say uh, 20 minutes worth of explanation of what's in the book and the subjects it raises. Um, as they say, Evan uh, will be known to very, very many of you uh, as a leading broadcaster. He's a, 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 an unusual broadcaster, appears sometimes on the radio, sometimes on the television, now presents Newsnight, previously was presenting the Today programme, but also, I think, uh, is unusual within broadcasting of having an interest in business and economics, which has been carried through many years and iterations, and so brings to the BBC in particular a take on business and economics as well as news and current affairs. So without any more ado from me, ladies and gentlemen, our guest, Evan Davis. Tony, <clears throat> thank you so much. Thank you so very much, and I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Um, I have to say, as a sort of forewarning, that if you hear anything that sounds like an opinion, you have misunderstood me. I have no opinions. I work for the BBC, and I uh, <laughs> consequently am not allowed to have them. They've been surgically removed. Um, second piece of sort of basic housekeeping, uh, an apology that I am going to use the word bullshit, really, quite a lot in the course of the next... Uh, 90 minutes or so, um, mainly because, to be honest, it really is the best word for describing the kind of stuff that we are assailed by uh, in our daily lives. We are assailed by it, but we also generate large amounts of it as citizens too. It's a kind of, it's an endemic uh, human institution, and by it, I don't really just mean lies. There are lies, that's a kind of subset of, of, of what I mean by bullshit, but there are near lies. You know, I didn't have sex, sexual relations with that woman, is a sort of near lie. She had them with me, but I didn't have them with her. Um, then there's obfuscation, the kind of thing you often hear uh, politicians failing to answer questions. There's the, really the, the, the kind of Trump one, 
which was defined as a kind of bullshit by a very good philosophy paper on the subject called On Bullshit. Um, Harry Frankfurt wrote it. I think he was the one that made the word kind of socially acceptable <coughs> in academic circles. And he said, and he was writing before Trump, um, he said the, the essence of bullshit is not that you're lying, but that you're disregard, disregarding the facts. And actually, in a funny way, he's cap Trump is the best definition of that, best example of that kind of bullshit. That what Trump is, Trump doesn't so much carefully lie, he just says stuff, regardless of whether it's true or false. And that's actually a very subtle and slightly different thing to lying. The liar has to be careful with the facts uh, in order to oppose them, whereas Trump is never careful uh, in any sense uh, with the facts. So bullshit just means a whole lot of things. And you can use, we, we discussed, you know, the publisher and I, what different word you could use, nonsense, guff, you know, all the mendacity and nonsense, all these kinds of things. But basically, the word is bullshit, you know. Um, now, funnily enough, when I started the book, and I'm really pleased to be at the LSE to do this, I know a lot of you are not students at the LSE, but when I started the book, I had in mind that it might actually be an economics, a kind of pop economics book, because there's a lot, not only do economists contribute their share of bullshit, but they also write about the notion and concept of bullshit. They don't use the term, but they write about information asymmetries and their effects on markets. Um, the second-hand car market doesn't work because I, I want to buy your car, you're going to tell me it's great, I won't know whether you're telling the truth because you would say that anyway, and uh, so the market isn't going to work. There's this information asymmetry because of the existence of bullshit. The bullshit that you would tell me means I can't buy your second-hand car really knowing whether it's any good. So I probably pay a bit less for it than I should. Um, so economists have really been interested in this topic, and originally I thought this book should be a kind of pop economics book about the economics of information, of which there have been quite a few Nobel Prizes now, including one for the guy who had that insight about the second-hand car market. I've just given you a Nobel Prize in economics. My description of the second-hand car market was a Nobel Prize in economics for George Akerlof. Um, so I thought this could, book could be about that. And then I thought what the book should be is why in economics land, or neoclassical economics land, in the traditional land of economics, there is no bullshit. And the reason in economics land there's no bullshit is that I'm buying your car, you're going to say to me, I, you, I'm not going to believe anything you say about the car because you would say that anyway, because I'm not going to believe you, you won't waste your breath bullshitting me about the car. There will be no bullshit. And that is the kind of the rational outcome in economics land. In economics land, there is no bullshit. Because we're rational. We would never believe something that was you know, unbelievable or implausible or would be said anyway. And so people won't waste their breath trying to persuade me of stuff that isn't likely to be true. So the book was going to be, why is there so much bullshit in practice if in economic theory you might not expect there to be very much? That was the kind of original purpose of the book, a kind of matching up of the mystery of why there's so much bullshit given the kind of the clean economic theory about this. By the way, in economic theory, 
there is an equilibrium, there is an outcome in which there's a lot of bullshit. And in the academic papers, it's called the babbling equilibrium, in which everything that is said is bullshit, and nothing anyone says is believed. And it's a, it's a kind of special case. It's a special case that economists talk about, the babbling equilibrium. And it's a bit like a pub on a Saturday night at about 11 o'clock, uh, or a school playground, or one or two parliaments in the world. But the economists have always recognised it as a special case, because as soon as you... As soon as there's any cost to speaking or any cost to writing, it, 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 no one would do it. But so the, the economists have discussed all of this, and I, I was really interested in trying to make a book that kind of tried to match the economic theory with the reality. And then um, the, the book was going to be called, this is about 2012, 2013, it was going to be called Peak, Peak Bullshit. Uh, and then 2016 came along, and we realised that we'd only been in the foothills in 2012. Um, and so the book is kind of a book about the economics, but also a book uh, that goes into populism and the relationship of bullshit to populism. So what I want to do now in this talk is three things. I want to give you a very quick summary of why I think there's so much bullshit. Two, I want to just talk a little bit about populism and whether bullshit had some relationship to what has happened uh, across the world in the last uh, couple of years. And thirdly, I want to leave you with a proposition or a question and my answer to it. And it's a, what I think is, is a really big question. And uh, it will probably challenge a lot of what you think. So I'm going to leave you with the question and my answer. But, I, I, but I'll, I'll, I'll put that at the end. So a so quick summary of, of, of the book then, in, in essence. So why is there so much bullshit, given that you might expect rational people not to believe it? A number one reason is actually a lot of bullshit can be very informative. It's not informative literally. It's just informative in that the choice of bullshit tells me something about you. And so a simple example would be, I go to dinner with you, you bring out a nice... We had a lovely time. You bring out a, 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 gooseberry, a dessert from the oven, a gooseberry, a gooseberry tart, and it's burnt. And I'm your guest. And I don't say, it's burnt, I don't want any. I say, oh, that looks lovely. No, oh, that's not, nothing wrong with that at all. No, that's fine. I'm bullshitting you. You learn nothing about my... Uh, you, you get no information from what I say about my view of your food. Literally no information. You know that I'm bullshitting. But you do learn something about me. I'm well brought up, uh, I, I'm probably middle class, and I know how to behave at a dinner party. And these are, all, these are all sort of useful things to learn about me. You might, if I said, God, that's burnt, just, just throw it away and we'll, uh, we'll go without. If I said that, you might learn that I'm not very well brought up. Or, interestingly, because this is a very subtle language, you might learn that I'm actually really intimate with you and I don't have to worry about your feelings because we know each other so well, you know, we're best buddies, we've been best buddies for years, that I actually, I can just be completely frank and straightforward. So the communication via bullshit is subtle and rich. When Donald Trump in 2007 did, um, took part in a World Wrestling Entertainment uh, Battle of the Billionaires, he took on Vince McMahon, the owner of the franchise... You can watch it on YouTube. Um, and, you know, there are two wrestlers who are fighting on behalf of the two billionaires, one of whom is Donald Trump. 
and then of course it all gets a bit uh, heated. Donald Trump goes in, body slams Vince McMahon and pounds his head, and the crowd roar, blah, blah, blah. It's all on YouTube. I think there was an element of stagecraft about that experience. <laughs> it was bullshit. However, it sort of tells you the kind of guy he is. He's not an opera guy or an art gallery guy. Hillary Clinton would not have been able to pull that off. <laughs> and you, you learn something about people via their bullshit. So that's one reason why there's so much. A second reason, which is kind of related, is about fitting in and the culture. So um, it's the, the, the builder is the one that comes to my mind. We've had builders in. They said it would take six months. It's taken a year. I knew it was going to take a year when they said it would take six months. If they'd said it was going to take a year, I would have been really confused. I would have been thinking, God, is it really two years it's going to take? <laughs> and so the, the honest builder, the honest builder really is at a competitive disadvantage. If you're a builder, you just have to fit in with the thing, which is to exaggerate and bullshit about how long it's going to take. A very practical example, uh, your age, in, 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 people have bemoaned this, in dating apps, um, you know, people do tend to shave a few years off their age. And if, um, if when you say you're 36, that means you're 41, um, you better not say you're 41 if you're 41, otherwise they'll think you're 46. And so the mere language, you know, the fitting in language means bullshit is just, you know, part of the thing. You have to, the, the, the culture of it is, is very strong. So that, that's a sort of second, a second account of it. But the third and by far the biggest cause of bullshit and the, the biggest deviation from the kind of rational model of, of economics is, of course, that human beings are not altogether rational. We have our system two brain, which is our rational brain. It's a little corner up at the top here, which thinks about things, ponders on them, considers them. But the bulk of our brain is pretty instinctive. It's more animal uh, than rational. And bullshitters can manipulate our beliefs if they understand how the instinctive brain works and they understand how to kind of find a little trapdoor into the head, go in there, play upon or exploit our mental foibles and shortcuts and rules of thumb, our instinctive ones, and they can manipulate our beliefs. So, because we're not rational, yes, we do get bullshit does work sometimes, and yes, bullshitters thus have an incentive to bullshit. The, the pure rational economic model is wrong. Now, I'll give you an example of this kind of uh, exploitation of, uh, of, the, uh, of the sort of mental foibles. Psychological pricing. Um, the ebook, my ebook, was originally priced at 9.99. Um, 9.99 is a psychological price. It's basically a bullshit way of saying 10. And the, there's no material difference. But it does appear to work, which is why it is a very popular way of pricing. There's a great test in the United States when they, a mail order company in the 90s was, 80s actually was persuaded to send out three versions of their catalogue, one with round number prices, everything round number, one with all the prices at 99, and one with all the prices at 88, just as a sort of cross-check. And it turned out that the, the 99 prices did have better sales than the other two catalogues, about 8% uplift. And 8%, it's not like everything, but it's also a lot better than nothing. 
and they couldn't even repeat the trial because the mail order guy said, no, I've, I've, I, now I've seen it, I, I'm, I'm only going to do 99 pricing. So that's, that's an example of a way in which, if you like, the way something is spun, the way it is framed, the, it, it affects your thinking and appears to affect your behaviour. And that, uh, you know, that is the sort of classic behavioural economics um, model, behavioural economic view of how actually real behaviour differs from the kind of naive rational model. So those are three, three areas in which I think we explain why there's so much bullshit. However, all that being said, all that being said, how powerful is bullshit at making us believe things, making us sustainably believe things when we've really had time or reason to think about them? This is an important question. So I buy a coffee, 2.95 feels within my kind of target price range. Three sounds a bit more expensive, I begin to question. Very subliminal, very small effect, but it is an effect. So the 2.95 does seem to do better than the three. If I'm buying a house, do we think that 295,000 does better than 300,000? Well, I don't know about you, but I think more carefully when I buy a house than when I buy a coffee. And I do activate that little rational part of the brain. I do think about it uh, much more carefully. And I think the power of bullshit to influence our thinking when we really have a chance to ponder on it, or when we repeat the experience very frequently, so we've kind of had a chance to learn as we go, that, I think, is much more questionable. And I have kind of come to the view that the economic model, the rational model, is not a bad character, character, caricature of the long-term situation. That you can get away with manipulating my beliefs for a period. That may be a very important period. That may win an election. That may you know, be a period in which I make some bad decisions. You con me and I, I, I fall for it when I shouldn't. But my, my guess is that the economic model, the, kind of the more rational model, begins to prevail on things that are very important or on things we have time to think about. I actually have interviewed, my, one of my favourite interviews was Warren Buffett, you know, one of the richest guys in the world, multi-billionaire, multi quite elderly now, by far the world's most successful investor, you know, started from nothing and has made hundreds of uh, billions of pounds for him and his shareholder, shareholders. And he, he invited us in, we interviewed him in, in Nebraska, in Omaha, a lovely guy, you know, has a very normal suburban house, has a normal car, he's not an oligarch, he's just, just a very nice, pleasant guy. Uh, and so we did the interview, and then afterwards, I said to him, very interesting that you have absolutely no public relations advisor, you know, any two-bit low-down executive in a mediocre company, I would expect to rock up with someone who is their sort of PR. And he said, he said, Warren Buffett said, hmm, by the time you get to my age, you get the reputation you deserve. And I think he was on to something. As it happens, that reflects his investment strategy too, that, you know, you look for value, fundamental value, and, and, and the market will sort of flounder around it. But 
its fundamental value comes out in the end. I think Warren Buffett was right that the truth will come out, that bullshit can only get you so far, and by the time you die, the best working assumption is that you, you have the reputation you deserve. And actually, I've, I've been invited as a journalist to various dinners and lunches in the city. I can think of three where city grandees or senior people have sat around and said, Mr. Davis, you are a journalist, you understand business and economics. We worry about what the public feel about the, the city of London. What, what can we do uh, to, to, to have a better, better reputation? And I, I, I just sort of scratch my head and say, well, how long have we got, you know? Um, if you have a bad image and you are bad, you don't have an image problem. And it's a, it's a badness problem. And the, that is actually the summary of the book. I, I mean, the, the, there's, nothing, there's no amount of lipstick you can put on that pig that will persuade people. So the only advice is behave really, really well. And after about five or six years of behaving well and still being hated by the public, slowly the truth will out and the public will come to like you and recognise that you behave well. So I'm not saying the truth on every occasion is it, it, it prevails, but I am saying over time I think the bullshit tends to, to be exposed and, 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 and truth, tends to, truth tends to prevail. So that's the sort of theory bit. Let's very quickly just talk about politics. I don't want to go on too long, but uh, I'll, I'll take longer than the 20 minutes Tony gave me. Um, politics, why is all this, why is bullshit so interesting at the moment, and why are we talking about it? Well, th th there are a lot of reasons, but I do, think, um, I do think the political establishment, the old political establishment, let's call it the kind of new labour establishment, but that includes Tory, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to focus on labour, but... New Labour and their spin uh, was uh, quite a thing, and it did have elements of bullshit about it, in which you were trying to say to people what you wanted them to believe, rather than what was necessarily your deep-down view of what was the case. So there were elements of bullshit about New Labour spin. There was elements across politics in which politicians had lost the ability to communicate in a straightforward way with the public. Often it's felt like they were trying to deny difficult decisions were difficult. They were trying to pretend there was no, uh, you, you know, they weren't raising taxes when they were raising taxes. Often they were speaking a language that, you know, frankly most people didn't understand because they were not being straightforward or sounding true to themselves or authentic. And I think one aspect of why bullshit and populism are related, is that the political establishment across the West who had become very sophisticated in the communication techniques they used, managing the message, employing people like Linton Crosby to tell them how to say it, shoehorning key phrases into everything they say because you have to ram the message home to the public, not, you know, never answering the question that the person's asking but the one you saying what you want to say, all of this meant that instead of making the public admire what they do more, the politicians had actually made the public very untrusting of, 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 of the politicians at all. So the PR, in the kind of old political establishment, the PR had worn out, it had run off, it, it kind of did well for a while, then everybody just caught up with it and said there's no relation between what they say 
and what they think. And so people just stopped listening to them. So the political establishment, I think, had run out of communications capital and consequently had sort of lost the ability to communicate in a very persuasive way. And it is interesting that um, in the American election, Hillary Clinton... Hillary Clinton had her kind of bullshit. Donald Trump had a very different kind of bullshit, and his was industrial scale, in a way, compared to hers. But his, his was a different, and I think in some ways to a lot of voters, a more refreshing kind of bullshit. It never sounded, even though he, they never took him literally, they, he, he never sounded like he was resiling from what he thought. And he might change his mind by morning, but he never sounded like he was trying to pretend something that wasn't. And Hillary, I think a lot of people just felt they never really knew what she stood for because the message was so carefully managed and, and crafted. And then even more, in fact, in the 2016 election here, it's true, 17 election here, the recent one, where again, it was actually a rerun. You had authentic-sounding outsider against a very, very managed, kind of clenched and rather stiff insider, political establishment insider, and, and, and you know, the, the result in both cases was the same. The woman insider got more votes, but the kind of the feeling of victory was with the, uh, was with the outsider. So I think one thing was that because people have overestimated the power of communication, the old political class basically had run out of tools to talk to the public, and that uh, held them in very bad stead when they needed those tools in the referendum last year. Right, the second way in which politics has been affected and relates to bullshit is, I think, in more divided times, people swallow more bullshit. In divided times, if, we, we're kind of, if we're getting very tribal about things, we tend to park our rational brain somewhere else and we let instinct take over and we like to believe the things that our side are meant to believe. And I do think division accounts for a lot of why so we're talking about this. We're very divided. I'm guessing probably 90% of you are Remainers. You probably think all those dimwit uh, Brexiteers, you know, swallowed everything, and it's bullshit. And, you know, that, that kind of perception is, is a sort of widespread perception. They believe the same of you, by the way. So um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of division begets bullshit. And I, I interviewed on Newsnight a couple of Trump supporters, very colourful characters, very uh, bubbly and, 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 and keen. And I, I said, I just don't understand how he could actually say his inauguration was bigger than Obama's, given the overwhelming photographic evidence that Obama's inauguration was bigger. And, you know, these women were like, no, that's just fake news, you're fake news. And... and I mean, what do you say? Basically, the belief uh, that they've just parked the kind of the critical appraisal and believe it because that's, that's what their side does. Right, so that's, I think, those are a couple of ways in which everything that's happened relates to bullshit. I'm on the optimistic side. My view... A lot of people are very worried about fake news and bullshit and 350 million and the lies of Donald Trump and all of that. Um, I'm a little more optimistic because I do think the truth tends to come out. And, you know, Senator Joe McCarthy in the 50s was a very powerful orator who told lots of lies and eventually just exposed himself as a bully and a liar 
and died a rather sad death a few, few years later with no public support. So my, my kind of general take is you may want to worry about Donald Trump. Um, you may not want to. You, that's up to you. You may want to worry about Boris Johnson, you know, or you may not want to. But I wouldn't worry so much about the bluster and the factual inaccuracies because I think ultimately Trump will be judged on what he does rather than what he says. The bluster will blow away and he will be judged on what he does. And there will be some who will, who will, believe, who will believe him great, come whatever happens. But I think most voters will judge him on what he does. And, you know, that's just back to the Warren Buffett point. No matter what you say, however stupid or however intelligent, can really get over the fact that you have maybe, uh, you know, real evidence in front of people's eyes to, to, to counter you. However, this is the big question. This is the question which I, 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 I kind of pose. Because my optimism gives you an answer to this question, or this issue. So, in your heads, I think, is a mental model of how politics, how advertising, and how communication works. And the mental model goes like this. Nescafe tell people Nescafe is the best. People look at the ad in a rather gormless, stupid way, go, oh, Nescafe's the best. <laughs> they buy Nescafe. Or Boris Johnson says 350 million. The public go, oh, it was 350 million, that's a lot. And they vote for Brexit. <coughs> or the Russians, Donald Trump, James Comey, say lots of things about Hillary Clinton. The public say, oh, I didn't know that. And then they vote Donald Trump. In that mental model you have, which sort of paths from the observable things, they voted for Donald Trump, Donald Trump said lots of things about Hillary Clinton, there's a sort of bit in the middle, which is that the public believe what they're told because they're gullible. That is, the implicit, that is the implicit premise of a lot of people's mental thinking about advertising and political communication. And I don't want to deny that there aren't stupid people. There are a lot of stupid people. Um, I've never met anyone who thinks themselves in that category, although I have <laughs> met a lot of people who agree with the proposition there are other stupid people. Um, but I think, I think it's too simple to jump to the stupid people theory as an explanation of Nescafe sales or Donald Trump's vote. I think what you... The reason why, and I, I heard Hillary Clinton through a, stream, through, through a live stream at the Cheltenham Book Festival at the weekend, in which she, she did blame a lot of people for her, her defeat, bar herself. And I, I was uncomfortable with that, because here's the thing. The public had two candidates, Trump and Clinton, one said bad things about Hillary Clinton. The other said good things about Hillary Clinton. Each of them had a vested interest in saying what they did. Trump would say bad things anyway. She would say good things anyway about herself. They were confronted with these two pictures of Hillary Clinton. And rather than saying, oh, the gullible public believed the lies, 
The important question is why on earth did the public feel so disposed to believe his lies rather than her lies? Why did they, why, of all the lies available, why did they pick those ones to believe? And I think as soon as you think of the question that way, it seems almost obvious that the, the public had certain reservations, I'm generalizing, many in the public had certain reservations about Hillary Clinton, who, by the way, had been on the public scene for 25 years. I mean, it's not like they'd never heard of Hillary Clinton, never knew anything about her or met her. And so I think it's more plausible to think that a lot of people didn't feel Hillary Clinton identified with them or represented them, and that that had something to do with them being disposed to believe the negative stories rather than the positive stories. I think that's you know, a really important distinction with the theory that, oh, well, the public are just stupid and they believe whatever you tell them. No, they didn't believe what Hillary Clinton told them. They believed what pr Trump and the Russians told them. And so there's a sort of paradox there, I think. Um, and I think it's too, easy to, it's too easy to just dismiss people as stupid. I'm afraid I think exactly the same of advertising. I notice when it comes to advertising, commercial advertising, the Financial Times makes more money out of advertising than does the Sun. Now, the Financial Times readers have a lot of problems, but they, they're not stupid, you know. And advertising works for a whole lot of reasons that are not because people are just dim at the end of it. And people are responding to ads for reasons that may be more subtle and more complicated than just that they literally interpret what the ad is saying. It may be the ad is reassuringly expensive. The ad says, hey, we're a very important and rich company, and that probably means we're going to be around for a few years. That's why we advertise in the Financial Times. You know, expensive ads that are here today, gone tomorrow. We can throw that money away because we're not here today, gone tomorrow. So there are a whole bunch of reasons why I think people do things that may look stupid, but I, I believe that you shouldn't jump to the feeling that people are stupid because I don't think it's a... I don't think it's a I don't think it's reasonable to jump to that theory until you have really direct evidence that there isn't something else going on, and there often isn't. Let me just give you one last reflection before I... Uh, sorry, shut up. My God, I've been going on and on. The last reflection is this, is that if you want to protect yourself against bullshit, I think, I think there's a... I think open-mindedness is the one tool you really need to have. I mean, we can sit and have a conversation about listening to the, looking at the reliability of the sources, you know, you get information from. Using the BBC as your only source of information is a very good, very good device for countering bullshit. We can go into all of that, but by far the best is to be a little bit open-minded. Because the really amazing thing is that actually, because you're not stupid, you're incredibly resilient in the face of enemy bullshit. When Donald Trump bullshits, you are not persuaded by what he says. I'm guessing you're not Trump supporters. It's just an just experience I have. But, I, but you're not persuaded. Enemy fire is not your problem. You are resilient in the face of that bullshit. Your problem is friendly fire. The bullshit you're swallowing is the bullshit from people you already agree with. And the way to stop yourself succumbing to that is much more to just question things that are 
just a little bit too gratifying and conform to your worldview in a rather gratifying way, is to just ask a question. Is that really the case? Or to try and see the other side of an argument. Because seeing the other side of the argument will just probably tend to make you realise that something that's been thrown your way, there may be more to it than that. I've covered loads of news stories and I've thought, that is so ridiculous. And then you look into it and you find there was more to it than that. And it takes open-mindedness not to jump to a conclusion. And I think, in a way, sort of final word, it tells us that a, whole, a book about bullshit, a kind of a talk about bullshit, thinking about bullshit, it's not really just a thing about Trump or the referendum or politicians or business. It's really uh, something about all of us uh, and what we do. Thank you very much. Okay. Thanks very much, Evan. And it's a, it's a particular pleasure to have Evan here, or coming back here again tonight, partly because uh, next month uh, I'm uh, launching uh, an LSE commission into truth, trust, and technology, which is going to be looking at a lot of the issues that Evan's talked about, from fake news to uh, the role of Google and Facebook and... Uh, you know, media literacy and political campaigning and so on. Uh, I realise now that we should perhaps have called it the LSE Bullshit Commission, but um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that had worked. Anyway, but um, I want to pick up on that word um, partly because you, you, the book is called Post-Truth and it talks about peak bullshit. I wondered, um, what's the difference between the two? Because you talk about bullshit as a kind of eternal human condition, enhanced by advertising and so on, but it's kind of always been there, it's part of our nature, and it even has you know, upsides to it. Post-truth, with, you know, the hyphen gives it a sort of academic authority, um, you know, that, <laughs> that implies that there was truth before, and there isn't now, no, and that's honestly, somehow that was, a structural it, it, problem. It, 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 was that just a cheap marketing it trick? It was cheap marketing. Okay, right. <laughs> don't, don't read anything into it. It was just like in November the publisher said, we've got to change the name, <laughs> got to be post-truth. And it was okay. such a good name. Two other books with the same name came out the same At least week. two. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. But it does, it, it does, though, beg the question about uh, whether there is something new about it, because that implies, you know, that you can do something about it. I wondered, I mean, you talked about the, the Hillary Donald thing. Do you think we'd be talking about this if Hillary had snuck in with the Electoral College, if a few more Remainers had tilted yeah. the other way? Probably not, actually. We might have been talking about fake news and the phenomenon yeah, of, 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 of yeah. stupid stories and a Montenegrin teenager, sort of Macedonian teenagers writing stuff that sounds plausible and it, it running around the world. I don't think we would have. Basically, the reason why we're talking about it is there's enormous concern among the class of people represented here tonight, I'm guessing, um, and about whether the public have been lied to and have made some really bad decisions on the basis of those lies. And I, I, th I think that's why we're talking about it. My, my take on it, uh, Charlie, really it's a, it's, a, it, it's a new vintage in the kind of eternal in institution of human bullshit. So definitely Trump is different. I mean, I mean, there's no question. Trump's disregard for facts is different to what we have experienced in politics here. The 350 million pushed the boundary out somewhat in terms of um, 
disregard for facts. And so, yes, there's something different happening. And you add to that social media that has given people a kind of bitterness and anger in some of the discourse and a, and a kind of shoutiness. And I think you can see why there's, there's public concern. But I really see Trump as a new kind of bullshit that displaced the old kind of bullshit, which was the sort of subtle nuance of, yeah. of, of new Labour spin. And, and, and in a way, you know, I'm sure... I, I think Trump's bullshit, by the way, will wear out quite quickly. It was funny. It was interesting. I don't think it's funny anymore. Um, and I think, it'll, I think it'll begin to grate on even people who were quite attracted to him. Uh, and it, I, I, my guess is, if it isn't associated with some really tangible positive results, like jobs coming back or North Korean dictators being deposed... Um, I would imagine it, it, it's going to get him nowhere. You know, that would be yeah. mm-hmm. But what about the other side of it, which is that, if you like, the, you talked about the sort of elite. And you talked about how their kind of communications capital had run out, which is a sort of interesting, you know, is there such a thing? But I wonder if in a way it's worse, in a way you're being too optimistic, that the problem around all, the success of all this bullshit um, is more about the way that that elite, and you can think of a journalistic elite, for example, that not just that they've lost their power, but they've completely disconnected from the people who believe the bullshit. And the sense that the problem isn't one of post-truth, but the fact is that there's a lot of kind of multi-truths out there that, 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 let's call it we, just don't tap into anymore. Uh, Well... What's really going on, I think, or suspect, is that the political establishment actually did become a bit disconnected, not with the truths that, that yeah. the, 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 the populace believe, but just they became disconnected from the problems that face their lives, you know, in, in more rural areas, outside the big metropolis. Um, and so the pub, it, it wasn't a matter of belief or disbelief or truth or not. It was the public felt to take the Hillary example, Hillary doesn't represent me. And she's banging on about transgender bathrooms. That's not something I'm banging on about. I'm banging on about healthcare or my elderly parent. I can't... Or the fact that my job is insecure. And so um, I, I don't even view the kind of disconnection between the politicians and the public only through the communications thing. They had lost the ability to communicate... But more fundamentally, they had perhaps grown a bit detached, and maybe that's why a lot of people voted to rebel. That's, why, that's partly why populism came. So there's a sort of communications level to it. The politicians had lost the charisma to sell themselves. But there's a whole other level to it. They just perhaps had lost the connection to what those voters were saying. I mean, who doesn't think British politicians had fallen out of had fallen somewhat out of touch with bigger towns like Stoke and Wolverhampton and Middlesbrough and, and, and small cities, bigger towns. That's, that's, a, that's where the British political system had grown disconnected. The politicians were very connected to London and Manchester, Birmingham and Edinburgh, but just not to all these other places. And, and it was very similar, I think, in the States. And also, sort of following up on that, that you referred to the city, that you can't, I think the fr- you said put lipstick on a pig, it's, you, know, you can't polish a turd, yeah. um, that 
that actually people weren't being irrational necessarily, no. that after the crash, why should they believe... But, well, but exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I don't see that as an example of... Yeah, the city people think the public have believed everything that they've been told and they're silly and, 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 and we need somehow to correct this misperception. I think it's very hard to say the public had any <laughs> misperception. I mean, it's just... Yeah. You know, they were, they were, it, was, it was ridiculous, wasn't it? Yeah. Totally ridiculous. I think, by the way, all of this goes back to that. That was such a shock. Yes. Such a shock to the sort of the elite or the elites, the, the cultural, economic, social... I mean, just in every respect, it was a huge shock to the system. Yeah. And just thinking about um, solutions, and again, you're being rather sort of blithe and um, just assuming that it'll kind of wash away in the, in the sort of Gresham's law of yeah, something yeah. or other... <laughs> Um, but I'm just thinking about um, you in particular. Just a, just a real specific, for example. How would you interview Donald Trump? Because I know, sorry, preface this with the fact that Evan, you know, when he went to Newsnight, haha, when Evan went to Newsnight, I had this lovely idea that he was going to be very rational, and instead of doing the kind of Paxman-esque beating up politicians, when there's going to have a nice rational conversation where the truth would emerge and a sophisticated conversation would happen. And you're still trying. Um, <laughs> but, 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 what if it, but what if Donald... And succeeding, of course. But if Donald was... Sorry, the president was there, how on earth would you... What, how would you approach that, one? do you think? When he, when he then lies, well, when he then says, no, you know... I, in a funny sort of way, I don't think there's any point... I think you, you must never let the lie stand. Right. But I... I don't think there's any point in arguing with him over it because, I mean, quite a lot of people have tried. So that, that whole line of trying to argue with Donald Trump about it, it's like trying to persuade someone who believes the Jews took down the um, Twin Towers on 9-11, a sort of conspiracy theory of that kind. There's no point in... Really, there's no point in having an argument with them. You're not, all, all that having an argument with them does is persuade them that you don't get it, and you're part of the conspiracy of cover-up of, uh, of, of, of what was going on. Um, so, so that would be... It, it wouldn't be uninteresting to sort of go into a lie and, and interrogate it and try and force him to... Um, force him to reveal... or to sort of explore what's going on in Donald Trump's head when he disregards facts. But everybody's tried it, and it hasn't got very far. Um, I don't think it's going to work to be rude to him, I don't think it's going to work to be rude to him because it, it just isn't working. You know, I mean, we can complain about him as much as we like. It's just, it's not, it's, all it's doing is entrenching the divisions which he is enjoying entrenching. So I think what I would, if I was interviewing him, I would want to confront him with the substance of what hasn't happened under his watch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I would only want to focus on the substance. I, I, you know, healthcare. Um, jobs, uh, security. Basically, there's a strong case that he has achieved nothing. Yeah. And by his own terms, not forget you know, my terms or your terms, there's a strong case to say he's achieved absolutely nothing except endless arguments every day with this person or that. And so I would, I would personally focus on the substance. Yeah. And just uh, finally, finally, again, on the journalism bit, obviously you work for the BBC... Um, you know, and I did for a bit as well, and it, it's still a, a sort of temple of a kind of objectivity. 
But I wonder if in a world where there is this greater diversity and perhaps mm -hmm. the Beeb's missing out on it, um, the, this sort of multi-truth world, etc., etc., whether you shouldn't be a bit more subjective, a bit more empathetic. Well, that's so... I mean, that is a really interesting debate. Um, so the answer, I think, is this. In the, broad, in, in, the, in the media ecosystem, I want there to be shouty people who are deeply adversarial. I think they have a very valuable place and on all sides. And, you know, I, I admire them for what they do, like I admire barristers who put on a funny wig to say, by the way, I don't believe any of this crap I'm saying now. It's the sort of act I put on. And then give a kind of an extreme case in defence or prosecution of a client. So I like all of that. I do think it is really good for there to be one, two, or three big, important media institutions who see their job as being fair to both sides of an argument and, uh, and who don't see it as their job to kind of be shouty in, one, in, 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 in support of one view. And I sort of cite United States television as an example of what goes wrong when you don't have that. I mean, I think it's just... You just want everybody to be slightly forced to watch uh, a little bit of what the other side is seeing so they get out of their echo chamber or their, their rabbit hole. And funnily enough, I think the case, the case, I think in the 90s you might have said, what, 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 what does the BBC bring to the party? I think now it feels much stronger case to me as you see people retreating in, in a divided society, people retreating into their tribes, believing stuff because that's what their tribe believes. I think it really is important that there's a kind of an ecosystem that includes the tribal, but also includes the ones that try not to be tribal. Very difficult in a divided society. The pressure on the BBC and the kind of the vehemence with which complaints come about how biased we are this way or that um, make it much harder. But fundamentally, I think it's the vehemence of those complaints are what makes it so important right now. So I, I, I've actually grown, if anything, to believe that the BBC is more important than it was. But I don't want the BBC to be uh, the arbiter of, of, of good you know, judgment and impartiality. I, I think you want, you want a couple of others as well. So there's a sort of competition for that franchise, yeah. um, which there is. Which there there's is. now thousands of others. I'm going to throw it open to the, the rest of you guys. Um, if you'd like to put your hand up, and up to ask a question and wait for one of the stewards to bring a microphone. That would be rather splendid. And if we can start there, that would be great. Thank you. Hi. Thanks very much for coming, Evan. It was a really insightful talk. Um, so I'm, my name is Marco. I'm a student here at LSE. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you're aware that you know, print newspaper sales and revenues, unfortunately, is at historic lows. And I'm sure you're also quite aware that, unfortunately, negativity sells. You know, what bleeds, leads. That's, you know, sort of a maxim that we tend to use in the journalism world. So in the future, um, how do you think, how can journalism balance the need to sustain itself financially while remaining objective and accurate without falling prey to this negativity, to this negativity yeah, impetus, yeah. which so many tabloids are already subject to? Right. Apart from being licensed funded, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I, I 
if I'm honest, I, I do worry a bit about the whole financial model of good journalism. I don't think... I, I'm not as despairing as some, because, I mean, it's quite obvious that there's, there's been a huge shrinkage in newspaper readership, and there hasn't been a shrinkage in supply, basically. So you, you have what would be considered excess capacity in that market. And I would have thought that isn't sustainable. I mean, I would have thought there will be some shakeout and I, over the next 20 years, and I would have thought that will make the, re- the residual papers more financially, just a bit more financially secure. Um, so, so that is one answer. The second answer is, I worry, I think we need to find ways of paying for this stuff, because if we don't, it's... Uh, it's it's going to be quite a big loss to society. Uh, And the third answer is that negativity does sell, and if it bleeds, it leads up to a point. All these things wear out and they get stale. And so don't underestimate the power of alternative people to come in with a different model. I mean, I'll, I'll give you just one not very good comparison but that makes the point I mean, which is... United States TV was always regarded as the rubbish TV in the whole world. You know, it was the, the British were the best, and the US TV was terrible and tawdry and had so many adverts you couldn't watch it. And when they got, in the US, the revenue model right by cable and subscription, so you actually could charge people for quality material directly as opposed to having to pay for it indirectly through ads or through begging on, on, on screen for the money... Once they got the the revenue model right and HBO came along, basically, I think no one would doubt that American TV is the best TV in the world. I mean, it's just absolutely brilliant. And all the kind of classic series, a lot of the classic series are American, apart from the reality shows, which we export uh, to them now. So it's a... Yeah, there is a sort of entrepreneurial media culture, which means people come up with new stuff. And if everybody's getting tired of negative someone will come up with something different, and that might be, might be encouraging. Great. Um, should we go to the uh, other side? The gentleman halfway up, please. Sorry, on the right there, the grey jacket. Thanks. Hi. Um, thanks for very much for your talk. Um, I've got so many questions, but I'll just ask, I'll just ask why, one. Because, and, <laughs> but I've um, been, a, been in philosophy for a while, and I've read the Frankfurt, and one thing that he finishes off with is talking about sincerity, and I'm a bit less, um, sincerity as a type of bullshit, um, I'm a bit less optimistic than you, um, because I see us now entering, we've gone through the age of spin um, with Blair, and we've gone through the real sort of PR um, stage with... Um, Um, with Cameron and I worry that we're going into an age of sincerity which is very different which Frankfurt um, you mean fake sincerity is that no sincere sincerity right Um, (laughs) when when Trump says um, I've heard that um, when he when he talked about um, unemployment rates he says you may you may think unemployment is six percent but I've heard that that it's uh, 20 30 40 percent he's not being um He's bullshitting, and he's, but he's being sincere to himself. He's being authentic, right? And a lot of conversation, political conversation right. recently has been about how ex-politician is right. authentic. So I think, I think you're onto something there. So I, I do think 
tired of all the managed messaging, which led to politicians who were not very sincere, the public have said, oh, we like the sincere ones. They're a kind of reaction against... And, I, I mean, the, just think about the kind of the, the, the UK election this year, you know. So it doesn't matter whether they talk nonsense. As long as there's a sort of sincerity there, that's a quality we latch onto. I think that is right. I think that is why we get now fact bullshit, bullshit over the facts, but sort of sincerity in appearance, because that is where the public have gone. And, and, and you may be right to be worried. The only thing I would say is that all these forms of bullshit really wear out. And, and so just being sincere but being stupid or being wrong with the facts will get you somewhere, but after a while it will become a bit tiresome and you'll want someone who has gravitas and there'll be a kind of gravitas uh, trend. So there's no communication strategy which trumps all others. There's no communication strategy which is the right one in all circumstances. There's a sort of... Where we are now is a, a reaction against where we were. And where we were, by the way, go, you know, where New Labour were, goes back to the kind of mess of the 1992 election when they felt they were, they were, they were too honest. And, and so that was a reaction against something in itself. So these things, th these things move in waves and fashions. And I, 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 I hear what you're saying. And I do think at the moment... Sincerity is what people like. It's why, by the way, Jacob Rees-Mogg is a kind of rock star in the Conservative Party, because he, he does actually... I mean, A, he's very intelligent, he's, he's a bright guy, and he comes across as very sincere. By the way, I think he is sincere. And, um, and you know, and, and you, people will go quite a long way with views, like his views on abortion, or, or just to take an example quite a long way with that, just because he's willing to say what he thinks. But don't blame, don't blame the public. Blame the politicians who, for so long, ran away from saying what they thought that the public got very tired of them. Uh, you know, and I think we all did. They never said what they thought, because they were trying to think about how that would go down with the people they're speaking to. And eventually, everyone says, oh, just tell me what you bloody think. I don't want to know what your focus group you know, says. It's a good point. It is. Um, I'm looking for a bit of gender, gender balance, if you don't mind. Can we, we, can we, can we go to the back there, in the middle there? Thank you. So my question's actually on gender balance. Um, <laughs> I, I'm wondering what role you think gender does play in all this, because it's not something that we've that sort of been mentioned up to now. Um, I mean, obviously the post-mortem of why Hillary Clinton lost the American election is going to go on for, like, several decades. Um, <laughs> but do you think that women are held to different standards of objectivity slash authenticity, maybe? Possibly. Because um, I'm thinking that... Uh, I thought the, the, the last question is... Um, point about the fact that authenticity is cool now is, is very interesting. But if you think about... In, on, in both elections, both sides of the channel, of the Atlantic, not the channel. Um, you've, so we've got kind of Clinton, who's seen as being too robotic. There's also Theresa May seen as being too robotic. Um, but then on the flip side of that, uh, if, if, if Donald Trump or if, even if Jeremy Corbyn, different as they are in other ways, do an interview that's a car crash, it's seen as being kind of endearingly unspun, whereas Diane Abbott's car crash interview gets dragged over the coals for weeks. So I'm just wondering what 
role, whether you think that there is a a gender difference on how much bullshit. Yeah, I mean, we're Hillary Clinton spoke about this on Sunday, and she said she thought she, her view was women are held to a different standard. Women are admired when they voice support for someone else, but they're not admired when they voice support for themselves. And I thought that was an interesting point, and is possibly right. And it is possibly right that there are elements of, 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 of different treatment of, 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 of genders, you know, subliminal, subconscious, or, or, or outwardly misogynistic. I mean, they, I really, I think there could be some elements of that. Um, I wouldn't leap to that, though. You know, the United States elected a black president, and I, I would have put that as much more unlikely than a woman president. I mean, you know, I, I really would have thought that was a much harder sell. Um, than a, than, a, than a female president. And I... So sort of... Also it was striking how poor Hillary's performance was with women. I mean, that was... Now, women may have all the same subliminal or subconscious biases that, that men do. And she did, she did win women. I mean, let's be clear. But it was, it was really surprising that it wasn't, you know, a slam dunk with women, given where Trump was, uh, to me. I mean, that was... And so I think maybe th there were some other things going on. But I, I, look, I, did, it was such a close election that almost any theory you have about any 1% of the voters was decisive. So it is quite possible that what you're saying is right. But I wouldn't leap to it as the kind of the first. Do you want to come back on that, or do you, Take, take the mic just so others can hear. But it's an interesting conversation. That's why. Yeah, I, I suppose I, I maybe shouldn't have sort of led with Clinton in that I, it wasn't really just a question about why did she lose the election. No, no. But I think it was more. The thing that I think is interesting is that, uh, which is why I brought in the Diane Abbott comparison, I think is instructive in that um, there does seem to be a sense in which. I mean, maybe this is just yeah. misogyny full stop, but women are simultaneously um, are simultaneously um, blamed more for being insincere if they're sort of two-stage managed, yeah. and yet judged for letting things slide too much if they're if too they're authentic. Not. Yeah, maybe there's that. Um, so I suppose... I, yeah, think, I, think, I think the Diane Abbott interview... I mean, it was a disaster. You didn't have to be misogynistic <laughs> to think that interview was a sort of... To, to put it crudely, yeah. a cracking bit of audio that yeah. all the media was <laughs> yeah. going to play. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that Corbyn was beaten up by Emma Barnett on, 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 yes. on the BBC, on Women's Hour, and it didn't get as much, even though he's far more important than, than Diane Abbott. So it was, but it did get quite a bit. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it wasn't perhaps quite as dramatic a sort of <laughs> humiliation, but it was, it, was, it was fairly dramatic. OK, we want to go to the left. There was the, the lady there, five up. First of all, I agree with um, that lady we've just been speaking, of course. Um, thank you very much. Very interesting subject. I want to continue on the journalism front, which we haven't talked about very much. And um, you mentioned, this is what you said, you must never let lies stand. And I think that the public sector broadcasters who have to be balanced have a bit of a problem 
um, and they've always had this problem of letting both sides speak. The problem is when you have something like climate change and the BBC invites um, Nigel Lawson to come on as a, an expert on the subject, he knows absolutely nothing and he, he mouths completely incorrect information and he's not picked up by the interviewer because the interviewer is a generalist and not a scientist. And then they have a scientist on the other side, maybe, who hasn't had enough time to explain why the other person is talking a lot of rubbish. The same thing happened during the referendum campaign where, they, unfortunately, the interviewers didn't have enough basic facts at their fingertips to cross-question the people, the say, on the 350 million and so on. Are you talking about the 350? Or 350 million. Mm. And also some of other issues where... Unfortunately, during the, during the referendum campaign, a lot of facts were, uh, sorry, a lot of men weren't facts, sorry, a lot of um, incorrect information, incorrect data was allowed to stand, and not calling them lies exactly, because sometimes the people actually believe some of this information, but they weren't, the interviewers often were not fully informed or given the data with well, which to respond and say, well, I think you may be wrong about right, that. I, 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 it's a very fair point. Can I, let, let, let me answer it, because I, I think it, is a, it, it comes up a lot. Um, I think the... I think the mistake you're making in the way you frame the question, and I think you have made a mistake in the way you frame the question, is putting too much weight on individual encounters or individual, individual facts. The public... Don't go out of one interview with Nigel Lawson and make a decision about climate change. They, they make these judgments over a long period of time. They judge Hillary Clinton over a long period of time. They judge the referendum over a sequence of encounters and a sequence of debates. And here's my bet on climate change. Everybody in this country who consumes BBC output and has any interest in following this at all knows that the overwhelming scientific consensus is climate change, man-made climate change is real. And you would have to be spectacularly disengaged with the BBC not to have picked that up from the BBC. Now, it is true that if you woke up from a coma and had one encounter in which you heard Nigel Lawson you know, arguing with a Nobel Prize winner on the Today programme, and I can think of about four over the last ten years where that has been the case, um, you might have a different view. But four encounters, or whatever the number is, I don't know, whatever the number is, a few encounters do not drive public opinion, and they don't drive people's beliefs. People pick this stuff up. They know it's true. The, there was a very, so that's my first answer. My second answer is that the 350 was a very special problem. And I, I do think we have a difficulty over that, which is this. Not that the BBC didn't challenge the figure of 350. I can, I can give you a bit of me challenging the 350 for about three minutes with Douglas Carswell and asking him and just flatly saying, it isn't 350, you know, and is everything else you say as reliable as your assertion on this because then we shouldn't trust you on anything. I could, you know, the BBC did question it. Here's the problem. That was what the Leave side wanted us to do. It didn't matter to them whether it was 350 or the legitimate figure, 280, or the more legitimate figure, 
150. All they wanted was for us to spend day after day arguing about is it 350 or is it 280 or is it 150? Because to any ordinary member of the public, all of those sound like very large amounts of money. And so we were, by arguing with it, falling into, if you like, a manipulation of, 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 of the debate. And, and all that should have happened is, we should have just said, it isn't 350, it's an arguable figure, 280, or perhaps a better indicator, 150, and shut up. But by giving it attention, and by the way, it wasn't just us, the Remain campaign did the same. And by giving it attention, you, you, you effectively did them. And that, when prominent people tell lies, what should the media do? Should they ignore the lies in order to stop them, if you like, getting any currency? Or should they report them? Because it is useful to know that this prominent person is a liar. Uh, and, 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 and what they're saying is a lie. So I, it, that one is a real dilemma. But broadly speaking, I believe people come to views over time, not on the basis of Nigel Lawson's 8 to 10 on the Today programme. Okay. Uh, good God, loads of them. Um, who was up first? We take, I think you've had your hand up quite a few times. Yeah. Thanks very much. Um, and, and taking your point of view about starting from an opposite viewpoint, when I reflect on your touching view that the public aren't stupid, I mean, is it... <laughs> a, or a blank sheet that here's a message and then acts? I mean, could it be really that a lot of uh, the public start off prejudiced and that, um, yeah. you know, that actually Correct. what the public figures, whether you think it's Trump or Corbyn who's an idiot, is just pandering to them. And that in some sense, the public gets what the public wants. That, 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 that I think, is a very uh, a not bad way of <clears throat> reshaping some, some of what I'm saying, actually. But the causation isn't necessarily running from demagogue to public. It's almost the demagogue is... It, it runs from the public to the demagogue, really, because the public are disposed to believe those things. So my, my fundamental belief is worry about why people are disposed to believe things rather than... You know, so, so there's a lot of worry about Holocaust denial. I mean, you, it, it, it's... A, it, it's worry, worry about why people, given the overwhelming kind of weight of broad, respectable opinion... <coughs> of the Holocaust, why people are driven to believe in cranks and, 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 and nonsense about it. And that, 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 to me, is a really interesting question and gets you somewhere, rather than just focusing on the existence of cranks and, 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 and idiots. But it's also, I mean, obviously that one's an extreme belief, but, I mean, the phrase prejudice, one person's prejudice is another one's, yeah. you know, idealistic, sincerely held worldview, isn't it? I yeah. Mean, you know... Um, Talking of which, uh, should we run down to here, please? No, it's a bit further down. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thanks for bringing the word to LSE. I was really uh, interested to come. And uh, I wanted to ask you about the question here, why we have reached peak bullshit. And my question is, why it sounds like now we have to always choose between two bullshit? I noticed that it happened in the States and it happened in my country back in Egypt during the election. Most of my friends in the States, they were like, and mostly were women, by the way, they were saying, oh my God, why do we have to choose between those two? Why there isn't a third option? 
The same thing happened in Egypt. It was like, why do we have to choose between those two options? So do you think we reached the peak bullshit because we're always now um, like cornered to choose between two bad things? My second point is about the social media. Where do you think the role of social media in that? Do you think it helps in disseminating more bullshit or it helps in filtering it and eventually okay. like reducing validity? Good question. So on the second one, does social media, is it a vehicle for propagating bullshit or a vehicle for correcting bullshit? I, I have to admit, my working assumption, not having, knowing the answer to that question, is that it more or less washes out. You know, social media is a vehicle for the transmission of bullshit and a vehicle for the transmission of correcting bullshit. And I, I kind of start from the default that in the absence of evidence to the contrary, it's probably about as good uh, at, at those two things. So it's neither meant more bullshit or less bullshit. The worrying thing about social media is that it's heated up the public discourse into a more vitriolic and shouty form, and that lends people to, to stop, you know, to park their sensible brain and just believe nonsense. So the social media thing is not about propagating, it's more about causing division. Very interesting, by the way, that the Russian effort, the kind of intelligent interpretation of what the Russians were up to in America, wasn't supporting Trump. It was sowing division to entrench opinions and make everybody more tribal and angry with, with the other side. So that's my answer to the, uh, the second question. No, I don't believe bullshit accounts for why people often feel they've only got two bad choices in elections. Normally that is the crudity of political institutions. In our country, you know, electoral system will drive you towards two parties. The internal constitutions of those parties will drive you to power for activists choosing leaders which will drive you to people who may not be the ones the public would necessarily choose. So the public will say, why do we have to vote for Jeremy Corbyn when the, 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 the party activists believe that's the perfect choice? Um, similarly, in the United States, activist power, uh, Republican base, Democrat base, to some extent accounts for who the candidates are, and the voting system really allows for only two, two candidates. In the book, I, I, I go at some length through the... Um, rather sad case of Admiral Stockdale, Jim Stockdale, who was the uh, Ross Perot vice president in, candidate for vice president in the 1992 election in the States. Um, a really admirable guy. Uh, you can't read about him without thinking he's just the most fantastic guy. Um, and who kind of ended up in a debate with um, Al Gore and Dan Quayle. Um, and uh, so he's in this debate... And the vice presidential debate, he's the third candidate, and is just completely sort of trounced and, and, and humiliated by all, of, by, by all of that. And I suppose he is a sign that it is quite difficult, if you're honest or sensible or a good guy, to kind of hold your own in the, in the nitty-gritty of politics. But I don't really... I think it does make it difficult, but I also think... The, the choice of two, every system ends up as a choice of two, and often it's not the choice you want because, you, you know, because the institutions drive you to, to a particular way of, of yeah. selecting. Um, <clears throat> actually, you've had your hand up all the time, sorry, because you're, you're near, I've ignored you, sorry. 
Yeah, um, Bernard Casey, I used to work at this institution. Um, I want to come to your solutions for this because um, what you're saying is that the only way we can cope with this is to learn to ask more questions and learn to see the other side of arguments. And um, well, there are other like things too, sorry, yeah, yeah. No, go on, go on, I'll let you finish. And, and uh, we have to learn to be more open-minded. And I would like to know where we learn these things, because I'm not certain that we are... I know I'm not certain that we are learning these things here. If um, My experience of higher education, going back quite a long time now, is that higher education is increasingly extrinsic in its orientation. Um, I just think of what it used to be like when I was a student here once upon a time and what kind of events I see um, now, and I think back to even when I was an undergraduate somewhere else. So I'm by no means certain that there are institutions or of any form which are helping us to ask more questions and well, ask better questions. And I certainly don't think that social media, which I don't think corrects false opinions, it merely reiterates the other side of them. I don't think there's very much correction. So I'm not quite sure what the forum is for this learning mm. process. No, it's, it's, it's a very good point, because actually one of the only... Uh, look, if, if, you, if, if I was in charge, I would probably be having some pressure on Facebook and Google to remove some of the egregious stuff. Um, socially, I would encourage people to be less tribal about things. I mean, as a sort of advice to Remainers... Um, remain a friends of mine I tend to say if you want to persuade someone Brexit is a bad idea it's best not just to call them a dimwit and say they were fooled by obvious lies it's best to work out what was really going on in their motivation for that vote and to be empathetic but a really practical thing actually would be I think teaching people some critical skills and that means probably at school actually just skills about you know open-mindedness, a small degree of scepticism, not so much scepticism that you're gullible for fad conspiracies and alternative views, but, but a, a, deg a degree of scepticism. And I think critical, <coughs> critical thinking and sort of media literacy is, is, is a pretty good, is a, is, would, would actually be pretty good. I actually think protecting people against their own subconscious biases and prejudices is more important than than trying to outlaw the liars. You're never going to outlaw the liars. Yeah. You really want people to put a lock on the... You're never going to stop burglars. You just want people to put a lock on the door to make it difficult for the burglars. Similarly, we're never going to stop liars. You want people to be resilient against that, and that means educating them in some of the, the sort of silly mistakes we all make when we're interpreting information that's presented to us. It's not that we'll always be fooled. It's just that sometimes it's quite costly in the short term that we are fooled. But do you think we have become less critical? I mean, uh, certainly it is sort of, uh, uh, sort of, what's the word? When most people, uh, there's a problem of a lack of deference or a lack of trust, yeah. a lack of confidence institutions, which speaks in a way of people to, to being skepticism, yeah, yeah. people being more individualistic. Yeah, yeah, We've yeah, encouraged yeah. them to think for themselves, to challenge authority. And well, I, you know. I, I wish it was that, that, that they've encouraged them to think for themselves, but I don't think it is. I think it's just a, a sort of it's a it's a, an anger and a bit more knee jerk. Yeah. Um, and people do believe things that conform to their worldview that I think they shouldn't believe. I mean, people believe politicians are really venal and, and bad, and 
My experience is not in this country. And, and I, I actually think the public image of politicians is, 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 is far too negative, really. I mean, don't, don't you? Or do and journalists, too, of course. I, well, I'm yeah, not so yeah, sure much nicer than, than you might think. Um, <laughs> can we, so, we can, so we can run right up the top there. Do you mind? Um, gentleman three from the back on, on the right. Um, don't you think all this talk about bullshit, especially coming from a member of the establishment media, your ideas are very influential, that it's going to justify this current spectre we're seeing now, this talk of censorship, especially after 2016 elections, we're seeing a crackdown now, both um, in, in the US, the US Congress, and also in Germany, where they're trying to impose fines on Facebook for disseminating fake news and publishing that. And Facebook is having to rely on fact-checkers, organizations like Scopes and Politifact, which ostensibly are supposed to be independent-minded fact-checkers, but they also have their own kind of liberal biases, and yeah. they tend to swiftly pick more conservative uh, lies to, to fact-check rather than liberal ideas uh, or lies which might be more carefully elaborated but are still devious in their own way. And so, at, so at that at a certain point, can't we just say all fact-checking is kind of advocacy and just leave it up to free speech in general and let the contest of ideas roam? Well, well, well it's, it's a, really, a really good point because in the broad view of, of, of this topic, I would put myself on, more on the laissez-faire side than most uh, others. So I, I know a lot of people basically think there should be some giant fact-checking thing that stops lies being spread, stops Google from letting people spread these lies... Um, and stops people believing things that are, that are not true. And, and, of course, you're right. The reason why one wants to be sceptical of that is that although I would trust myself to be in charge of that process, <laughs> I, I wouldn't really want to tr trust anyone else to be in charge of that process. A great example of it is the Advertising Standards Authority, that, you know, you just gets in an enormous tangle when it comes to political ads. I mean, you know, where do they stop if they're going to outlaw lies? And so I... I uh, I kind of agree. I think, it's, I think you need to be a bit careful about trying to police it. I mean, A, you might give people the impression, then the false impression, that you've policed the system and then you can really believe everything you read on Facebook. No way. I would never want people to, to think, oh, it's policed, I can now believe it because, you know, the, the government have imposed fines on them for, for, for the lies they spread. So uh, I do think that... Truth discovery is a process, it is not an event. And so, over time, you want there to be a battle of ideas and you want the rubbish to be filtered out by people saying, well, that's just rubbish, isn't it? And, 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 and to me, I have more faith in that process than most others. But that's not to say that there aren't some egregious things that Facebook couldn't do. And it's not to say, you know, what's, what's really annoying are the more plausible things that are spread. It's not... The Pope endorses Donald Trump, read by a million people, which probably half of them just read it because they knew they weren't going to believe it. And the other half probably learned over the course of the, the, the weeks that the Pope was unlikely to have endorsed Donald Trump. It's not, it's not that. It's the stuff, it's the sort of random small things um, that people say that, that's just very annoying. Someone changed my middle name in Wikipedia to Arnold. And I, I'm nothing, <laughs> I have nothing against the name Arnold, but... But that was actually really annoying because, 
that's not my middle name, but it's highly plausible that that is my middle name. And, it, that, you know, the Macedonian teenagers just getting paid for, for producing copy is, 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 is something that I'd really like to see stop. I'd really like to know why somebody did that. I, me too. Yeah, that's right. Um, can we just take the gentleman in the purple top? There. My name is Tony Sindon. <clears throat> I studied here some years ago. Uh, I want to take you back to my earliest memories. So, Hitler's bullshit got away with it, did it? I mean, it stuck. I, it, Bad ideas can be dangerous. Yeah. I, 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 I don't want to say everything is always for the best in every possible world. And I don't want to say people are not stupid. I certainly don't want to say people don't make mistakes, even sensible people make mistakes. And I certainly accept there are extreme cases of which every conversation when you go to extreme cases goes to the one you've just mentioned, uh, where somebody doesn't captivate a nation and turn that nation, you know, induce that nation into horrific horrific things as a result. So I'm, I don't want to say that. Let me summarise the weaker proposition that I am really trying to argue here. The best working assumption on almost all occasions is that people are not gullible and that there's some reason for what they do. So it's, it's not the case that you're not going to find examples where people have been gullible. Con artists send out phishing things, you know, I know someone who got an email saying you've won a lottery ticket, you have to send us some money to, to get your prize. And he phoned to say, do you think this is real? <laughs> and I was flabbergasted, you know. So I said, no, no, no one wins a lottery ticket that they haven't bought a ticket for. You know, it just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't happen. And so just throw it away, step away from the computer. Um, so, yes, there are really bad things that happen, and there are terrible things, you know, terrible manipulations that do occur. The best working assumption, however, is that most occasions are not those. And it is... My only answer to your powerful counterexample is that that is the most powerful counterexample, and we keep coming back to it. I even talk about it in the book. I mean, there are... You, in the end, have to say that that one is the most extreme sort of 20th century one. Yeah. You, you could pick lots of other sort of two-bit demagogues like Mussolini or um, other world leaders, but it, they, tend to be, they tend to be found out much more quickly. OK, I think we're running out of time, but I think the, the, the good news is we've now... Uh, Evan is now offering a personal mobile phone fact-checking service to anybody who, <laughs> who, who suspects that they're subject to bullshit. Um, listen, uh, keep in touch, please, with my effort on truth, trust, and, and technology. Um, be aware that Evan is signing books outside afterwards. Uh, thank you very much for some fantastic questions, and especially for Evan's uh, talk tonight.